It's the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. The National Security Hour exposes the wolves in sheep's clothing and their nefarious plots to undermine and destroy U.S. national security. Welcome back to the National Security Hour on America Out Loud Talk Radio Network on iHeartRadio, the voice of freedom, the out loud truth, where you come to hear military and intel experts. America Out Loud Talk Radio plays on the iHeartRadio Network. You can also hear us on any media player from any web browser anywhere in the world. We have the best in-class apps on Apple, Android, Alexa, and we stream 24-7, and now you can hear them too. Also, we do it 24-7, so if you need the videos, we want to share the news. We have the videos, we have all the podcasts, but it's great shows. But today, you're going to have our guest, Jeff Shepard, on the National Security Hour with our guest host, Michael Shoyer, Dr. Michael Shoyer, and me, Colonel Mike. And... Uh, we're happy to have him back. This will be two parts, but today's part one on History Friday on the National Security Hour. So uh, I want to let Dr. Michael Scheuer introduce Jeff to our audience. Go ahead, Dr. Michael. Well, our, our guest today is um, America's foremost expert on Watergate and all the attendant uh, tomfoolery, illegality, and uh, other things that accompanied it. Uh, uh, Mr. Shepard was, uh, uh, in, starting in 1969, he came to the White, as a White House fellow to Washington. He's a graduate of Whittier College in California and Harvard Law School. He was the youngest lawyer on President Nixon's White House staff. He served on uh, the domestic council in the White House for five years, rising to associate director, and he worked as a deputy counsel on Nixon's defense team. Uh, on his Watergate defense team. Uh, he has spent much of his career researching Watergate issues and, and is today the foremost on the behind-the-scenes developments, the foremost authority on behind-the-scenes developments, both at the White House and the Watergate Special Prosecution Force as the scandal unfolded. He's the author of three uh, books, all pertinent to that era, Uh it's the, one, the first was published in 2008, The Secret Plot to Make Ted Kennedy President, Inside the Real Watergate Conspiracy. The second was prom, uh, published in 2015 called The Real Watergate Scandal, Collusion, Conspiracy, and the Plot that Brought Down Nixon. The third, published in 2021, is called The Nixon Conspiracy, Watergate and the Plot to Remove the President. Uh, Mr. Again, uh, this is the th second or third, fourth time we've had uh, Mr. Shepard on, and he's always a, a fascinating guest and uh, a man who knows his history backward and forward. So we welcome him here again this morning. Thank you, welcome, Michael. Jeff. It's good to be with you. Thank you, sir. Okay, why don't you lead us off, Jeff? Go ahead. Sure. What What is in the news today uh, uh, has to do with uh, people who are being prosecuted and people who are not being prosecuted. And in, in legal terms, the, the uh, decisions are classified as prosecutorial discretion. The prosecution decides what cases to bring and what cases not to bring. And, and there's legitimate concern uh, because it seems so one-sided. But the idea of targeting a particular defendant uh, or not targeting 
uh, didn't start with Donald Trump and uh, Hunter Biden. In fact, in the modern era, it can be traced back to when Robert Kennedy, President Kennedy's younger brother, was attorney general in the early 1960s. Now, Bobby Kennedy had been chief counsel on the Senate Rackets Committee under Senator McClellan, and he took an intense personal dislike to Jimmy Hoffa, who was president of the Teamsters Union. Hoffa called him in these hearings a spoiled rich kid, and Bobby Kennedy called Hoffa the most dangerous man in America. Because if the Teamsters went on strike, they could bring the whole nation to a halt. But the hearings didn't work real well. They couldn't get, Bobby couldn't get a good grip on Hoffa. That all changed when he became Attorney General of the United States, the youngest Attorney General in our history. And he personally recruited 20 lawyers whose only job at the Department of Justice was to go after Jimmy Hoffa. They became known within the Department of Justice as the Get Hoffa Squad. And they had a couple misfires, but they did presentations, I'm told, to over 25 grand juries to get something, anything, on Jimmy Hoffa. Now, if you go back a little bit further, that's how they got Al Capone. They got him on income tax evasion. They had to have something to take him down. Well, the idea was let's get something on Jimmy Hoffa. And they finally did. They convicted him in two separate cases, uh, one in Tennessee for jury tampering. Uh, this is 1964. And one in Detroit for uh, wire fraud. And Hoffa was sentenced to 13 years of prison. And their thing stood. But there were lots of criticisms, legal criticisms, over the corners that were cut by targeting a particular individual uh, uh, and, and, and this idea that, well, the ends justify the means. Uh, when President Nixon was elected in 1969, he commuted Hoffa's sentence in 1971. And interestingly, the staff work for President Nixon was done by his lawyer, John Dean, who figures prominently shortly thereafter, in the Watergate scandal. Now, what happened on the prosecution side in the Watergate scandal was two Harvard professors, Archibald Cox and James Vornberg, the original uh, special prosecutors, recruited 60 lawyers to go after Nixon. This was a recreation of the Gedhoffa squad, some of its personnel, Certainly, its practices targeting Richard Nixon. It became the Get Nixon Squad. Its formal name was the Watergate Special Prosecution Force, but it was the same idea. We'll investigate everything we possibly can, and we will bring charges against Nixon and his people, uh, and we'll bring them down. And, of course, they did. It took them a while, but uh, uh, they convicted two dozen of Nixon's uh, members of the Nixon administration. And, and while we'll, we'll go on, and, and, and that's where I'm an expert, because I was on the other side, the losing side, uh, but I've researched all the corners they cut. But come down to present for just a second. Uh, there's a Get Hoffa 
uh, I'm sorry, a Get Trump effort underway. In fact, that's the name of a recent book by Professor Alan Dershowitz, of, uh, a, a retired professor of criminal law from Harvard Law School, Get Trump. And he details all of the shortcuts that the prosecutors are taking in order to bring Trump down. Uh, and it, you know, it starts back with those with those impeachments. Uh, and and it, it, it starts to look strange because there's state charges and federal charges in different areas, all aimed at preventing Trump from being a candidate in 2024. And it doesn't seem balanced. I mean, you've got people on Trump's side, like uh, uh, Michael Flynn and Paul Manafort, uh, uh, Roger Stone, Steve Bannon, uh, uh, who are prosecuted, uh, convicted, and, and, and end up in jail. Uh, you have people on the other side, uh, uh, Lois Lerner at the IRS, uh, uh, the uh, uh, Hillary, her, Hillary Clinton herself on these uh, on these documents, Peter Strozer and Lisa Page at the FBI, Andrew McCabe at the FBI, James Clapper of National Intelligence, John Brennan of the CIA. They all seem to be able to do things which might get other people prosecuted, but nothing happens on the Democrat side. And it's this feeling that there's a double standard. And of course, the personification is uh, is Hunter, Hunter Biden. And, and what makes it interesting, if you, you, you gotta have a pretty jaundiced view of history, if a political party controls the House, the Senate, and the White House, there are no scandals because they don't want to investigate themselves. It's only when you have divided government where one of the houses of Congress is different from the presidency that you get vigorous investigations. That's what we see going on now. Until the Republicans retook the House, there were no investigations. Uh, everything was just hunky-dory. But now they're just tearing themselves apart and and it's it's almost every day there's a new development. So we'll we'll see what happens. But let me tell you, this is very similar to Watergate. The way things the way things are coming out and and uh, uh, how news is unfolding. So you went from get Hoffa, similar people, to get Nixon. Uh, again, the top seventeen people on the Watergate Special Prosecution Force all served together in the, the uh, uh, Kennedy-Johnson Department of Justice. These were people who lost power when Nixon was elected, but somehow they ended up uh, being able to investigate and prosecute the duly elected presidency, and, and, and they went after him hammer and tong. I mean, I was, I was on the other side uh, uh, we it, it was interesting because back then you only got one point of view. It's hard for people that weren't alive in that era to understand, but the press only spoke with one voice. There were only three networks, three national networks, ABC, NBC, and CBS. 
there were two very influential newspapers, the New York Times and the Washington Post, and two very influential weekly news magazines, Time and Newsweek. But they all had the similar point of view. So today we use this term narrative. You know, there are new terms today, uh, fake news and deep state and narrative. Those things all existed back 50 years ago during Watergate, but we didn't use the same terms. We talked about the federal bureaucracy and the liberal Eastern establishment. And sometimes the permanent government was a phrase that was used. But Jeff, today, let me that's ask you a question. State. Yeah. Jeff, let me ask you a question. In, the, in, in that time also, we had the same type of D.C. government, I'm sorry, judicial system, where it was all stacked Democrats. So when Nixon's people went into the court, uh, in Washington, they didn't have a good time in that court. They didn't have a oh, fair trial. You, no, no, absolutely true. You, you you need to be reminded that the Democrats controlled everything from 1932 forward until Nixon was elected president. I mean, Eisenhower was there, but he wasn't a political president. It was his vice president who was political. So all the judges, all the judges, all the voters, the D.C., uh, was was this in, in in this situation where even opponents would would agree that Republicans in a political case didn't stand a chance of a fair trial in the District of Columbia. That was true uh, in the 1970s. It's true today. Trump got five percent of the vote in the district. Now this is an interesting aside. Just to, just just to mention it. Uh, the Congress doesn't like the IRS because their constituents keep getting punished. Uh, and they passed a law that said if you're accused of cheating by the IRS and they bring the case in Washington, D.C., you have the right to remove that case to your home district. And the rationale was that these cases usually come down to uh, 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 character testimony. You know, he's really a nice guy. He loves his wife. He's He's been honest all along. He may have may have missed a few dollars on his taxes, but don't send him to jail. Just but like it's Biden. Very hard. <laughs> it's very hard if you have to pay to fly your friends and neighbors to Washington to come testify. So the Congress said, look, if that's the accusation, they got to try you in your home district where your friends are. Well, I heard the other day that same idea is going to be proposed for people where there are criminal charges brought in the district. That as an individual, you have the right to remove the case to your home district. That would change everything. Yes. Because then you'd get an unbiased jury, maybe even in a local situation where you, you were uh, respected instead of despised. It's just a, a very interesting possible cure for this situation where fair trials for Republicans in the district are non-existent. All right, we got two minutes to go. I just want to mention something. There was a, there was a J6 prisoner who was in, I think, uh, Farmington, New Mexico, yeah. who had some of that, who, who was able to have his trial in Farmington, New Mexico, if I'm correct. 
Yeah. There was some reason or another because the FBI agent involved was from New Mexico. He didn't want to do a SWAT type uh, slam at his house, which is what he was directed to do. He just said, let him turn himself in. I have to check on that. But I think if I'm correct, he was in Farmington and apparently he did like a week in a local prison kind of thing. It was one of these guys that was protesting, but nothing nasty, no breaking yeah, of the window. Yeah. We're coming well, down. You know, uh, uh, go, go back to Watergate real quick. Uh, uh, everybody tried in the district of Columbia was convicted with two exceptions. Uh, uh, Ken Parkinson in the cover-up trial, who wasn't guilty of anything. And John Connolly, who was a, uh, a, a Democrat turned uh, a Republican. There were three cases tried outside the district. And in all of those, there were acquittals. Uh, it, it was really an, it's an interesting juxtaposition. The most intriguing case, and we can talk about it when we come back because we're going to run out of time. But it yes. was the DeMarco case, the charges that Nixon and his people cheated on his income taxes. Let's let's save that for when when we return. All righty. So we're going to go to commercial. You're on the National Security Hour. Today, your host, Colonel Mike, Dr. Mike, and our guest, Jeff Shepard. For 25 years, Global Healing has proudly produced the highest quality supplements and cleansing programs that are rooted in nature and backed by science. Get 15% off all of our products using code OUTLOUD. Global Healing, giving you the power to take control of your health naturally. How can you improve your odds of staying healthy? The answer is stay healthy with Cofix RX. Who's got time for a cold, strep, a flu, HRV, RSV, or COVID anyhow? Cofix has some great news. Besides being featured as a top five product in the drugstore news, we completed the protocol that you've heard Dr. McCullough talk about. Cofix RX is already famous for a powerful virus hostile nasal solution, and now we have a throat spray too crush those nasty germs before they become a problem. With known antiviral support ingredients like povidone iodine, xylitol, and vitamin D3, you can feel a little safer. For a limited time, when you add the new Cofix RX throat spray to your order, you'll receive 25% off the entire purchase. Just click the Cofix RX banner on the America Out Loud website or store. Be sure to use promo code OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Don't forget, OUTLOUD25 at checkout. Well, the out loud truth was the rallying call that started it all. A wide spectrum of programming from world and political news to societal, your health and cultural stories. Seven amazing years of news stories, informative podcasts and great talk radio. America Out Loud Talk Radio, the liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to the National Security Hour. You're on with Dr. Michael Scheuer and Colonel Mike. Today, our special guest, Jeff Shepard. We're going into segment two. This has been a great conversation so far. Dr. Mike, would you like to say something before Jeff continues? Yeah, I, wasn't it originally, uh, Jeff, in, in U.S. law that a person anywhere in the, in the 13 states had to be tried in the vicinity of his hometown. 
Uh, Wasn't there always it, a concern? It's possible I'm, I'm not a specialist on early American law. Yeah. I, 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 I don't know. I, I think it was called something like vicinitage or something like that. Okay. But it was, a, okay. it was in the colonial laws and it, yeah. it followed into each of the state constitutions that you had to be tried in your home area. If you go back far enough to jolly old England, uh, the reason for a grand jury was when the king's sheriff came in to arrest somebody for a charge them, uh, they had to convince that person's neighbors uh, that there was wrongdoing. The purpose yeah. of the grand jury originally was to protect uh, uh, feudal barons and, and, and uh, owners of property from uh, 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 attacks by the king. And, and when you were tried, it, you were tried on the basis of your whole life. It wasn't, did you do this one thing? Yeah. It, it, it really, I mean, the people on the jury knew who you were. The people on the grand jury had to be convinced there was really grounds to charge you at all. So the, yeah. the, the, the point would carry over to the, uh, to the colonies. Not yeah. the case today. No. Uh, uh, the grand jury can't know you and the jurors can't know you. Uh, yeah. And you're 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 at their mercy, and although we call it a jury of your peers, very very frequently it's nothing close to that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, and that, well, let me let me go back just for a second to the Demarco case because you go I, right I, ahead, I, sir. I find it so intriguing. Uh, you remember Nixon was accused of cheating on his income taxes. It had to do with uh, donating his uh, his papers to the archives. Uh, uh, and, and Frank DeMarco was his tax lawyer, and they charged Frank DeMarco with uh, 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 cheating, uh, helping Nixon to cheat on his taxes. In fact, when when Nixon says your president is not a crook and people have a ball accusing him of that, that was when it first came out that said you haven't been paying your income taxes. And he was furious because he felt his taxes were clean as a hound's tooth. They were, they were uh, uh, fully defensible uh, because he didn't make any of those decisions. His lawyers did. What happened on his papers was one of his lawyers, a colleague of mine, uh, got behind and didn't complete the deed of gift for the percentage of his papers that would have maximized their deduction value. Uh, in, in the old days, I know this isn't the heart of what we're talking about, but Watergate's so intriguing. Uh, in the old days, those papers, the presidential papers, belonged to you. And what you would normally do after you left office, you would donate them to the National Archives for a tax deduction. But you didn't donate them all at once. You donated just that amount that would maximize the value of that deduction for that particular tax year. So the archives already had the papers. There was no question he was going to be donating them over time. The only issue was which ones this year. And, and this particular lawyer got behind and didn't complete the deed. And, and the uh, uh, prosecutors exploited that to a fairly well. Well, they charged Frank DeMarco, who was his, his tax lawyer, and they charged him with an income tax violation. And up comes this uh, uh, ability to remove the case. And he said, I'm going to remove it to L.A. where I live. 
And they said, oh, if you do that, we'll bring additional charges against you. We're going to punish you for taking advantage of this law. And he said, you can't do that. And he sues him in the district and the prosecutors lose. They go to appeal it for the D.C. Circuit and they lose. You can't threaten additional charges when someone exercises their statutory right to remove. So the case is being heard out in Los Angeles before a Lyndon Johnson appointed judge, Judge Ferguson. And it turns out the prosecutors had exculpatory information that they hadn't turned over to the defense. And it came out during the course of trial. And and they tried to explain it away and they couldn't. And the judge threw the case out. It was really interesting. And there's a wonderful opinion that says, yes, these are serious accusations, accusations of crime. But we have a greater interest in fair trials. And you have you have this misconduct that that has been shown to exist by you. You you Watergate prosecutors is such I'm, I'm I have to dismiss the case. So it was just an interesting reversal if the stuff I've uncovered in the past 20 years came out at the time of the prosecutions, I'm confident that those cases would have been thrown out too. See, what you had, you had prosecutors, specially recruited prosecutors who hated Nixon. Your listeners understand there are people who just hate Donald Trump. Well, it was the same thing 50 years ago. There were people who just despised Richard Nixon. And those prosecutors were going to get him no matter what. And they were so eager that they cut corners. And what's interesting is they left a paper trail. And what I've been doing for the past 15 years or so is I've been at the National Archives submitting Freedom of Information Act requests. You know, those come up today. People are discovering all kinds of stuff with FOIA requests. Well, I've been putting in FOIA requests on the Watergate Special Prosecution Force records that are maintained in archives and discovered this incredible paper trail of what these people did. Now, remember, I was there. I lived through Watergate. I was on the defense team. I transcribed the tapes. I ran the document rooms that held the seized files. I testified at the Plumbers trial. Uh, And by the way, for your listening uh, interest, I'm the only member, senior member of Nixon's White House staff who has a clearance letter. Because when the smoke cleared, I was so involved in the defense, I was unemployable. And I went to the special prosecutor and I said, this is no fair. I acted as an honorable lawyer. I defended my client. And now I'm in I'm in trouble. Uh, and he said, what do you want me to do? You didn't get indicted. I said, I want a letter. He said, well, have him call me. I said, that's not good enough. Five years from now, 10 years from now, I want a letter that says I was not the, I was not uh, uh, investigated. And he did it. I have this letter, kept it in my safety deposit box for a long time. It says, <laughs> after checking with our task forces, I can assert you are not and have never been the object of an investigation of this office, which is saying something because they were after everybody on the White House staff. So when when I learned 
the special prosecutor's records were all at archives. I like to think I know where to look. I know what we were trying to do. Now I can go see what they were trying to do. And it's an incredible paper trail. There were secret meetings with the judges. There was uh, evidence that would have been helpful to the defendants that they deliberately hid. They misinformed the Congress and the grand jury. I, I happen to think they misinformed them deliberately uh, because they couldn't quite get the goods on Nixon. So they just said they had them, even though they couldn't prove it. And we'll we'll go into that in, in part two when, when I when I come back. But for now, I want to talk about this key guy, the single most important prosecution witness in all of Watergate, John Dean. Now, remember, Dean did the White House staff work on getting Hoffa's sentence commuted. Dean's the principal accusatory witness in Watergate. Interestingly, Dean was the first witness before the House Judiciary Committee on Trump's first impeachment hearings. They brought back John Dean out of the past to come say, and I, and I think in general, he said, oh, this is worse than Watergate. Uh, uh, but everything is worse than Watergate because Watergate was really trumped up charges. Now, there there really was a break-in. They should have been punished. They were. There really was a cover-up. The difficulty is the prosecutions became politicized. And in my view, they let the real culprits go in order to get their testimony against the people they really wanted to get. Bob Haldeman and John Mitchell and John Ehrlichman, uh, where they didn't quite have the case. So these these people kind of fudged their testimony. But let's let's look at John Dean real quick. Uh, John Dean uh, uh, was intimately involved in the break-in planning. He ran the cover-up. He's characterized by the FBI as the master manipulator of Watergate. He was tasked with developing a campaign intelligence plan for Nixon's 1972 re-election campaign. Every campaign then and today has an intelligence plan. Today, they call it opposition research. You want to know everything you can about your opponent, what their policies are, where their campaign stops are planned, where their money comes from, what the polls show, who their confidence are, how their family is. And you uncover it uh, uh, if fairly if you can, sometimes fudging, sometimes you have a volunteer go in and work for them and report back to you. We had that. Trouble was, when John Dean was assigned that uh, 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 project, he hired Gordon Liddy to do the work. And that was a huge mistake because Gordon was looking to make a, a splash to impress people. And you can almost see a criminal mind at work. He concocted a plan that had proposals for mugging, bugging, kidnapping, and prostitution. And I'm not I'm not making this up. If you read his autobiography, he describes his proposals in loving detail. He was pleased with what he recommended. And John Dean was at two meetings in the attorney general's office, John Mitchell's office, when Liddy presented his plan. Now, 
the plan wasn't approved at either of those meetings. But when the break-in occurred on, and the guys got caught on June 17th at the Watergate office building, John Dean was worried he would be an object of prosecution because he didn't. He was in the meetings. He knew in general about Liddy's plan and what he had in mind. So he ran the cover-up. And I told the people on the White House staff, which was true, nobody on the White House staff knew about this stuff. He didn't mention himself, but he assured them they were clean, Haldeman and Ehrlichman in particular. The risk and the guilt, if any, was the people at the re-election committee. May not matter much to your listeners. You know, there's the White House, there's the re-election committee, but it mattered greatly to those of us on the White House staff. The re-election committee was physically separate, kitty-cornered across Pennsylvania Avenue uh, uh, in an in-office building. Uh, and, you know, people on a campaign get carried away. These guys got carried away. They should have been punished. But John Dean, in running the cover-up, infected members of the White House staff. Then when the cover-up collapsed, and it should have collapsed, it was illegal, he ran to the prosecutors and said, I will testify against my former colleagues uh, uh, and you can convict them who are more senior than me. Interestingly, the career prosecutors, the ones in the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1972, would not give Dean immunity. They felt he was too involved and that he was not being forthcoming about his own involvement. So they said no no immunity, come before the grand jury and tell the truth. But Dean had hired a very, very well-connected Democrat lawyer, a guy named Charles Schaffer, who happened, by the way, to have served on the Get Hoffa squad back in the uh, 1960s. And, and now he was in private practice, and he was a, a criminal defense lawyer. And he went very well-connected Democrat. He went to the Irvin Committee and worked out immunity from the Irvin Committee. Now, here's where it gets complex. When the McClellan Rackets Committee back in the 50s was after organized crime, they couldn't give immunity. It's my understanding. If possible I'm wrong. They couldn't give immunity to the witnesses to come forward and testify. So when Nixon became president, they passed what's called the Organized Crime Control Act of 1970, and they gave the ability to give limited immunity to the Congress, either by uh, uh, two-thirds of the committee or by vote of the House or the Senate. Its first use was against Nixon. The Irvin Committee gave John Dean immunity to testify. And his testimony, which is 50 years ago last month, it, it occurred on June 26th, dominated the airways. It was gaveled about, gavel coverage. It was one narrative. Here is this innocent whistleblower, this young kid who's caught up in a criminal enterprise, and he's going to tell us the truth. Now, that's not what happened, but that's the way it was portrayed. The Irvin Committee was looking for dramatic witnesses, and why not? Uh, John Dean was willing to testify against the president and his 
colleagues, John Ehrlichman, John Mitchell, uh, John, John uh, 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 Bob Haldeman. Uh, so they featured him as a hero. But he wasn't a hero. He's the one that caused it. He's the one that recruited Gordon Liddy. He's the one that ran the cover-up. Uh, uh, it, 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 it's, it's so fascinating that that's sometimes the way things work out. The only people who didn't get the word about John Dean was the Virginia Bar Association. The Virginia Bar Association disbarred him. They accused him of being guilty of suborning perjury, which is encouraging other people to lie to the grand jury, destroying evidence, stuff he'd taken out of Howard Hunt's safe, embezzling campaign funds to pay for his honeymoon, and authorizing the payment of money that John Dean characterized as hush money, he authorized the payment of that money to the Watergate burglars. Uh, John Jeff, Dean hold has that been... thought. Jeff, hold that thought. We're coming down to the last minute. This is so intriguing. It's, it's just amazing to relive history because we lived through it and hear you talk about it on the National Security Hour. So we're going to go to commercial. We'll be back for the final segment with Jeff Shepard. Dr. Mike, Colonel Mike, your host today on History Friday. This is so interesting. Can't wait to get back. The pandemic may be over for some, but millions of Americans are needlessly suffering from the long-haul effects of toxic spike protein from COVID-19 and the vaccines. You've heard Dr. Peter McCullough and his team at The Wellness Company discuss the harmful effects of spike protein in your body. And now they found the solution. The miracle enzyme natokinase. Their spike support formula contains natokinase, the most compelling and scientifically supported approach to safely clear spike protein out of the body. What's more, spike support is optimized with other all-natural, non-GMO ingredients, like dandelion root, to help prevent spike protein from binding to your cells. Everyone should take daily spike support so you can feel your best. America Out Loud listeners can go to outloudcare.com today and use code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Trouble getting to sleep and staying asleep is infuriating. Your mind races, you toss and turn, and the harder you try, the harder it is to drift off. And today's fast-paced digital age makes it tougher. You're not alone. Poor sleep affects over 70% of us. The CDC even labeled insufficient sleep a public health epidemic. Advanced nutrition company, Healthy Cell, created REM sleep to help you quickly fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake refreshed. Unlike other supplements that don't work, REM sleep is not a pill. It's a gel you swallow with ultra-absorption of science-backed ingredients, supporting all four stages of sleep using calming herbs, amino acids, and sleep hormone support. Over a thousand reviews with an average star rating of over 4.4 proves it works. Take back your sleep. Go to HealthyCell.com and use limited time code OUTLOUD for 25% off your first order. Risk-free. Love it or your money back. Guaranteed. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD. Welcome back. We're on with Jeff Shepard, special guest for History Friday. We're discussing Watergate 50 years after. Welcome back, Jeff. Thank you, Mike. Good to be back with you. Uh, three random thoughts to complete stuff that I, I spoke in the first two segments. We talked about the monolithic media back then 
one narrative. There was nothing else. That means there was no Fox News, no uh, Newsmax, no talk radio, no podcasts. Uh, uh, so you never got the other point of view. Now, recently, because it's the 50th anniversary of Watergate unfolding over these two years, uh, there were discussions about Watergate. And one of the points that was made was that, you know, if social media had existed back 50 years ago, Nixon probably wouldn't have had to resign because there would be a more balanced presentation. Now, this wasn't said by Nixon's friends. This was said by Trump's enemies ruining the day that Trump had such an effect on social media. But it's interesting because it happens to be true back then, back 50 years ago, the public only got one point of view. And the one point of view was that Nixon and his people were all crooks. It was like the mafia had taken over the White House and John Dean was this innocent whistleblower. Now, well, one of the things that I made was that, that, that there's this paper trail. Well, what's intriguing is Nixon resigned. His people were in prison. Everybody said, well, we've, we've handled that. Everything's known. Uh, for 40 years, that was the narrative that that uh, uh, prevailed. And then beginning just 10 years ago, in 2013, these papers began to surface these documents that I've uncovered, uh, and they can't be explained away. Uh, they document secret meetings uh, with the judges, and they document the hiding of exculpatory evidence from defense counsel. Uh, in 2013, Leon Jaworski's uh, uh, papers surfaced at his law school alma mater, Baylor Law School in Waco, Texas. Uh, uh, and, and he'd taken them with him when he left office. And I was the first one to review them once archives had retrieved them. Then in 2015, I got access to James Vorenberg's papers. He was the other Harvard Law professor that had recruited all of the people for the Watergate Special Prosecution Force. He also took comprehensive notes at each of the staff meetings in order to preserve a record of what they were doing. And he took them with him back to Harvard. And he became dean of the Harvard Law School. And they didn't open his papers after he died until 2015. And again, I was the first to see them. And then there's this other gentleman, number three, in the Special Prosecution Office, a guy named uh, uh, Lacavara, Phil Lacavara. He took his papers with him and didn't give them back to archives until 2020. And again, I'm the one who, who got to go through those first. They're available. They're publicly available. And if you go on my website, www.shepherdonwatergate.com, there are links to all of these documents. These are publicly available documents. They can't be dismissed. They can't be ignored. It, it, this is a bad analogy, but these are like Hunter's laptop. You know, you can say, oh, they weren't there. Oh, they don't count. But that's not true. They're there. They exist and they cannot be explained. That's why nobody invites me to any of these panels to talk about Watergate when we're going through this, because what I've uncovered is indefensible. Okay. Uh, we're back to John Dean. 
John Dean was the single most important person to the prosecutors, uh, to the Irvin Committee, and, the, and who gave him immunity, and then uh, to the prosecutors in the in the uh, trials. The difficulty was he was he was dirty, and they were worried when he that he wouldn't be a perfect witness when he got on the stand because the defense lawyers. This is not the media, but the defense lawyers would tear him apart. So what Judge Sirica decided to do was to enhance his witness credibility by throwing the book at him. He sentenced him to a prison term of one to four years with his, his uh, incarceration to begin the first day of trial. So when he took the witness stand, and he was the lead witness, he could say, I've been punished. I'm in jail. These are my colleagues. I'm telling you, they were in it with me. You should punish them too. And that one to four year prison term really enhanced his credibility. The prosecutors brag in their book about what a brilliant tactical decision it was to be sure the jury knew John Dean was being punished. You remember, Nixon was pardoned. So there was this risk. Well, if Nixon got away with it, why should his top staff go to jail? but they, they wanted John Dean to be punished so they could get the others. Then, and they were all convicted on all counts. John Ehrlichman, Bob Haldeman, and John Mitchell convicted on all, all counts in the Watergate cover-up trial. One week after that trial, Judge Sirica reduces John Dean's prison sentence to time served. So he was only in prison, only incarcerated, during the length of the trial. And then it turns out he never went to jail at all. He never spent a single night in a jail cell. He was housed, confined, at a nearby army base as a part of a witness protection program that had been established for mobsters who were turning against the, the mafia where they, they would live to be able to testify. That's where John Dean was. He had a separate office. He had conjugal visits from his wife. Uh, it was hardly like being in jail. And he was driven down to his other office with the special prosecutors where he worked on his book. And he's told people, it's on, it's on the record, he's told uh, interviewers, pretty tough, huh? So he, he claims he wasn't even convicted. He claimed, no, 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 I was part in a witness. I was put in a witness protection program. And, and you sit there and you say, you know, this is the guy who did it. This is the guy who did everything. And he walks scot-free. And the people who weren't that involved, but were more senior, they took the fall. They were sentenced to two and a half to eight years, each spent uh, 18 months in federal prisons. Now, John Dean testified before the Urban Committee 50 years ago last month. The other thing that's happening this month is the disclosure Alex Butterfield disclosed in his testimony, the existence of the White House taping system. This was huge. This was along the lines of that release of the uh, uh, 1023 in the Hunter Biden situation. This was huge. And it set off legal battles over who owned and who could listen to those White House tapes. Now, 
What the public didn't know and has come out since is that every president from Franklin Roosevelt forward taped. Now, it, it evolved with technology. But in the beginning, if Franklin Roosevelt held a press conference, he would invite in print reporters to the Oval Office. He would give his views and they'd go write stories. And Roosevelt felt the stories didn't fairly reflect his views. So he had a Navy, I'm told, I wasn't there. He had a Navy corpsman sit in a ventilation shaft under the Oval Office and take down his remarks in shorthand. So he could refer back knowing what he said. And then he could call up a reporter and say, you didn't quote me correctly. That evolved into a machine, very uh, uh, cutting edge machine that created on a wire, a, a, a woven cord, uh, movie and sound. And I think it was made by RCA. Uh, and, and all they wanted was the sound. They didn't want the movie part, but they recorded conversations, selected conversations. And the archives has some of those wire spools. They don't have the machine, so they don't know how to play it. And then that evolved into a little more sophisticated system. Truman had it, but didn't like it. Eisenhower taped. In fact, he taped when he was a general and was meeting with people he didn't trust. But he didn't tape frequently, and it wasn't publicly known. Lyndon Johnson tapped his telephone. And Johnson would spend lots of time on the phone getting votes for various legislation. He'd been a majority leader of the Senate. And this was back when you, you could do uh, entitlements. So you're looking for a vote from a particular senator. You can promise him a bridge. You can promise him a, uh, a post office. And Johnson was a horse trader. And he loved to record these sessions and then play them for his staff. Isn't this funny? Look how I, I got this guy to beg me for a bridge. Uh, then sometimes, and, and, and he wasn't doing it for the record. Sometimes they tape over the same tape because it was just it was just to keep a momentary uh, a record. <clears throat> Johnson's system was in place when Nixon took office in January of 1969. He had it removed. He didn't want to play with it. But one of his people was down in Texas talking to Lyndon Johnson, you know, how's it going? And, and Johnson was trying to write a book about his administration. And he said it was just so frustrating because he couldn't remember for sure <clears throat> what certain things had happened in the order. And he wished he'd taped more. So Nixon became convinced the best way to preserve a record of his administration was to put in a taping system. And it went in in February 1971. So you got two years without a taping system and then a little over two years of a taping system. A very different kind of taping system. Nixon's was automatic. If the Secret Service knew Nixon was in that particular room, the Oval Office the hideaway office in the EOB, or a couple of telephones that went through the switchboard, they turned on the recorder, and the recorder was sound 
activated. Now, if the president was in San Clemente and I gave somebody a tour of, of the cabinet room or the Oval Office, the machine wouldn't start up because Nixon wasn't present. <clears throat> but the Secret Service would turn it on, <clears throat> excuse me, if he were present. 3,600 hours of tape. I transcribed the Watergate tapes. I don't think there's anybody else from that era in a senior position who sweated over the tapes. The audio quality was not good. It's great on a telephone tap. It's less clear on an Oval Office. It's horrendous in the hideaway office in the EOB where President Nixon spent most of his afternoons chatting with staff and thinking through problems. And you're trying so hard to get that next word. And you just can't hear it. So lots of people who did transcriptions, these are uh, prosecutors or FBI brought in uh, uh, women from its field offices to do this. They hear, or the Congress, they hear what they want to hear. Then somebody else <clears throat> just reads the transcript because it hurts to listen to the, to the recording because you're, you're you're fighting over understanding every word. It's far easier if you trust the transcript to read the transcript. And you you lose the inflection, you lose the pauses, and that sort of thing. The archives takes the position that the archival record is the recording. So they don't issue transcriptions. That's not what they think is fair. You go make your own transcription. And there is one guy today, uh, a professor at Chapman University in Orange, uh, who runs a website called nixontapes.org, who has much better uh, feel for these tapes much better understanding of the phraseology that Nixon used, all that sort of thing. Uh, and I cede to him more current expertise. I did four dozen transcripts uh, published on August on, on April 30th, 1974. It's a volume. It looks like a phone book, telephone book from the old days uh, with a light blue cover. It was called the Blue Book. Uh, and that's, that's still around. Uh, but uh, Dr. Nectar uh, ha has produced and is in the process of producing what I believe to be far more accurate transcriptions. Uh, and and, and it, those are the ones people, scholars, ought to be using to go back through. The difficulty is in the 50 years, the context is lost because you don't know for sure why or how this particular conversation was occurring or what they're referring to. And since I did it back at the time, that's my expertise. It's a residual expertise. And maybe someday the two of us will combine to produce the definitive edition of the uh, Watergate uh, uh, transcripts. So that's we got a couple of minutes. Jeff, we're going down in the last couple of minutes. This has been just a great conversation for the listeners uh, in America and around the globe, naturally, but uh, the National Security Hour. Well, uh, what we'll, next what week we'll, is going to be, we're going to yeah, be having we'll you on next again time. next week also. What, what we'll do next time, which I think will be equally fascinating, we'll talk about the dilemma the prosecutors found themselves in 
when they decided not to indict Nixon, but instead to give their grand jury information to the Congress to use for his impeachment. And that decision method and the method by which they did that uh, will, will, I think, to your listeners, be absolutely fascinating because the roadmap, that was the document that transmitted this stuff, was only unsealed in 2018. Before that, we couldn't figure out, didn't know what crimes the prosecutors were accusing Nixon of having committed. We were fighting blind. And in 2018, the court unsealed the roadmap. Then you could learn what they had done to us 50 years before. Fantastic. You know what? We're going to have this in the notes. We'll have your website on the notes so the people can go to that and uh, also your books. So we just want to wrap it up. We want to thank you, Jeff, for coming back on the National Security Hour with Dr. Mike, Colonel Mike. And we want to uh, thank you, the listener, for joining us on the mission. The National Security Hour is the tip of the spear in the epic battle to defend the United States of America. 